Are you an enthusiastic wine drinker but sweat uncontrollably over a restaurant list from Albarino to Zweigelt? Set aside your fears, relax, and start enjoying wine without worry. Here's your host, Jameson Fink. Another gorgeous day in Napa Valley. And one of the things about if you visited Napa Valley, you've probably been on the valley floor, driving around, passing iconic wineries. But actually, right now, I'm in a, what feels like a whole different world at the top of Spring Mountain. I'm at Smith Madrone Winery, and I'm here with the uh, general partner, Stu Smith, sitting down. Uh, we're just relaxing, kicking back, looking at a beautiful view. Um, Stu, can you tell me exactly where we are on Spring Mountain and, and what we're looking at? Sure. We're, we're up about 1,900 feet in elevation. Uh, we're kind of wedged in between Stony Hill to the east and downslope. Barnett is just to the west of us, a titch above us. Keenan is kind of to the south of us along the same ridge line. And then to the north of us, we have about a mile and a half boundary with both a Napa Valley State Park. We're looking out over the entire um, uh, eastern uh, mountainside from just south of uh, Angwin, uh, Howell Mountain, all the way up to Mount St. Helena. And in the very far distance, uh, we can see Mount Berryessa, uh, which separates Napa County from uh, Sacramento uh, Valley. We're looking down on the upper part of the Napa Valley, uh, look down onto Larkmead Lane and can see the Silverado Trail on the far side and the cars going up and down the Silverado Trail. On Larkmead, there's um, the old Hans Cornell, it's now Frank Family Vineyards, and Larkmead Winery is on the north side of the highway. And that's kind of the setting. Oh, and then uh, just down the canyon and, and across, we uh, look down onto the upper vineyards of Schramsburg. And uh, one of the things about being up here and being at almost 2,000 feet is um, the wines tend to be different up here. And how, do, how is Cabernet Sauvignon here at Smith Madrone at this altitude in this part of Spring Mountain maybe? How is it distinct from uh, other Cabernets in the valley? Well, we like it better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, originally, uh, and maybe go back to the why, you know, I, I decided to come to the hills in 1970 and look for property it was because... I believe that there are fundamentals in wine growing, wine making that really are the foundations of, of, of great wine. And one of them is you can't make good wine from bad grapes, just like you can't make good fish from three, four day old fish. And the old saying, Bacchus loves the hills, mm-hmm. is still true. And that the best grapes we believed then, and I believe even more now, uh, come from the mountains. And the better the grapes, the less you do to them. The, you know, there's a lot of us say that the the wine is made in the vineyards. And when you have good vineyards, that's really true. And when you don't have such good vineyards, you're doing more winemaking in the winery uh, and manipulating and trying to trying to make you know that that uh, silk purse out of the sow's ear kind of cliche. But that's that's kind of why. And um, we dry farm up here, and I think that makes a difference. Uh, the soils are upland soils. They're not particularly fertile. They have pretty good depth. They're volcanic in, in uh, origin. Uh, our siding, our slopes, uh, we go up to 30, 34% slope. Um, and all of that goes into making, we think, wines of great distinction. There is no one thing that you can point to and say, aha, that's what makes mountain vineyards better. It's a whole bunch of little things. Now, you can also farm it to where there is no distinction 
of the grapes from the mountains. And if you can, and you can also, as a winemaker, take really good distinctive grapes and make that go away too. Uh, but again, you have to start out with a good raw product. So when you got here in, in 1970, or you know, in the early 70s, and you and there were there were no vineyards here, um, or were there vineyards here? Well, there were there there were remnants of an old vineyard. Uh, a fellow named George Cook homesteaded the property in the early 1880s. Uh, he got title to it because he cleared some of the forest, planted vineyards and olive trees, and apparently that was good enough for the government to give him title on December 4th, 1884. Uh, and we have that document. It's called a land patent, uh, signed by the most illustrious of all presidents, Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> like who? Yeah. Um, and uh, and when I first walked the property in early uh, early fall of 1970, this was a completely dense forest. Wow. Uh, I didn't even know the olive trees were there. Uh, and and uh, we closed on the property in early 71, May of 71. And, uh, and as we cleared it, we had to log it because it had, we, we had uh, uh, two foot, two and a half foot Douglas fir trees uh, uh, growing up right next to grape stakes. And what had happened is that phylloxera had destroyed the vineyards. Um, uh, phylloxera uh, went from, from uh, the eastern seaboard to Europe and from Europe it, it leapfrogged back to California to where California was pretty well decimated um, uh, in the late 19th century, and that's when this vineyard was abandoned. And so it regrew. It, 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 it took over quite rapidly because the soils are good. There's good climate, good, good moisture. Um, and uh, the name Smith Madrone comes out of that clearing because my brother and I had kind of like a constant case of poison oak for, um, <laughs> for uh, four or five years, and Smith Poison Oak didn't sound too good. No, no, that would not be as uh, compelling on a wine label. Yeah, but there were a lot of Madrone trees here, and, and a friend recommended to me, my best friend said, well, why don't you call it Smith Madrone? And we said, well, you know what? Yeah, that's that's better than Smith Poison Oak, too. Yeah, Smith absolutely. Douglas fir, Smith Oak. Yeah. So, so we stuck with it. Uh-huh. Well, it's worked out well for you. And one of the things also um, that I like about uh, the wines, too, is that uh, not only is the Cabernet distinctive, but there's a, a grape here that I didn't really expect to see and I don't see much of in Napa is Riesling. And can you tell me about the decision to um, make Riesling in Napa, which to me, which really to anyone isn't the first or maybe even the third or fourth or tenth thing people think of? Well, you, you have to understand that back in the 70s, the white wine boom hadn't started. The red wine boom hadn't started. And in, in the harvest of 1970, uh, Riesling, it was called Johannesburg Riesling then, Chardonnay, some people called it Pinot Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir all sold for the same amount of money wow. per ton. It was $450 a ton. And, uh, and, and being good, good, arrogant Americans, we thought we could do them all great. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we planted the four best varietals we think in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we quickly got our lunch handed to us with Pinot Noir. Uh, grafted it over to Chardonnay in 19, uh, 1986, something like that. We made one really good Pinot Noir, and then, as I like to say, uh, 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 California makes every bit as bad a Pinot Noir as the French do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got nothing on us there. And um, one vintage out of 10 or 12 or 15 doesn't make a good economic model. So it went out. And, uh, and Riesling was something that we always did well. Uh, our first wine 
won a very major award in Europe for uh, Riesling, and we, we, we bested um, uh, Schloss Johannesburg. And, uh, and my brother really is the one who, you know, he was the one in, 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 in love with Rieslings, especially the 71 vintage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with my background from Davis, you know, we understood that Napa Valley and Spring Mountain are different from Germany. We have our own climate, our own site, our own. And so the balance, which is so important uh, with Riesling, was there. And it's just one of those things that we, we loved. And we also believe that Riesling isn't kind of one of the great white wines of the world. It's one of the great wines of the world. Absolutely. And uh, as I like to say, the Germans really know how to market automobiles uh-huh. and uh, high-quality lenses and optics, and they don't know squat about how to market wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I started getting the wine in the mid-60s, uh, German wines were pretty much uh, the same price as French wines. And what's happened over the last 40, almost 50 years is that uh, Europe, especially French wines, uh, have skyrocketed, and some, and, and some Italian wines now. And the Germans really uh, have been left behind. Uh, and, and hopefully that's going to change with a new generation of young winemakers over mm-hmm. there because uh, it still is one of the great wines of the world. Absolutely. And by the way, who is our, our guest here? Oh, uh, making noise is Curly. Okay. Curly is my English Springer Spaniel. He's about... Uh, a little over nine years old and is fixated on attention. He, uh-huh. As I like to say, uh, he's the official greeter at the winery, and he has two traits. One is that he is aggressively friendly, and the second one is he has an unlimited capacity for attention, <laughs> which is what he's trying to get from us right now. Yeah, yeah, we're doing we're doing a good job of uh, ignoring him, but it's not personal. Yeah. And then, um, so the other uh, when I I got to taste your wines, um, that I had the Cabernet and the Riesling, and of course the uh, Chardonnay too. And, and Chardonnay comes in um, all different shapes and sizes, it's all over the world, and, and even in Napa. Can you talk about um, uh, the Chardonnay philosophy here, and and what maybe makes it distinct from other other more I guess stereotypical versions of of what Napa Chardonnay can and and is sometimes? You mean as in innocuously boring other Chardonnays? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was driving right. at. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think it gets back to our, again, our overarching philosophy about making wine. We think it's our job as the grower and the winemaker to get the vintage into the glass of wine. That, that's why we vintage date, which is to celebrate the diversity of the vintages and not as the, the, the cliche is pounding the square peg through the round hole so it all comes out exactly the same. We also believe that varietal content varietalness is important um, in other words if you look at the hallmarks of wine we really uh, give homage to the European tradition of balance complexity elegance restraint uh, and then there is uh, the the concept of terroir that we can all bash around for a long time or what a lot of Californians and even us for a while said was a a sense of place and I've now come to another concept and that is I think instead of terroir or a sense of place that that last important element in wine quality really should be what I call an ephemeral sense of art that wine should be unique especially from premium high quality producers 
that um, that wine from Smith Madrone should really taste different than, if you would, our Chardonnay from Keenan or our Chardonnay from Robert Mondavi or our Chardonnay from, you know, whoever. Whoever. Yeah. And that gives it a distinction. And whether it comes from the mountain grapes as ours do or from a valley floor vineyard or what have you, um, to me, that all has to be there. But it also has to be in balance and fundamentally you have to have good acidity we do not believe that wines that are high in ph and low in acid are wines of anything other than ordinary mediocre of interest and that goes especially for red wines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah uh i mean i think people talk about uh i mean Acidity in white wine seems like a kind of like a no-brainer, but I think that's a, a component that's missing when people are discussing red wine is that that's also, I mean, just as far as being food-friendly or kind of, you know, returning to the glass, that that, that acid can be a, it's an important component when it comes to being refreshing and refreshment. Well, I think what's happened in the last 15 years or so is that the, the, the winemakers, and especially the winemakers, uh, we've created a kind of a bifurcated um, industry for red wines. We have what we call here at the winery four by four wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't make the four by four. That's what we call this other style. And these this is without being too negative. Um, uh, wines that are four by fours are are what you know high in pH, uh, approaching four or even sometimes over four. And a total acidity, titratable acidity in the point fours. And they generally have very high alcohols. Mm-hmm. And to me, these wines are simply dull and uninteresting and boring. Now, some people love them. And God, God love them. Mm-hmm. If that's what they want, go for it. I really do believe that there is a, a, a true standard of what people can call good wine. And to me, high alcohol, low acid, high pH wines are not interesting. Mm-hmm. They're not great wines. They're not going to age. And, I, and I'm wrestling with this concept that can the new world ever really make great wines, ever be considered, not maybe in my lifetime, but sometime into the future, can new world wines ever become great if they don't age? And high pH wines simply will not age. And that's a really interesting, I think it's a debate that people have. I mean, in, in your mind, uh, the, the greatness of a wine is, is dependent on its ability to have longevity? I think to a certain extent it, it does. Um, uh, as an example, our Rieslings, I think, may someday make it into, those, into that level. Uh, they can age for 15, 20, 25 years. Our Cabernets are pretty similar. Our Chardonnays? They're not. Mm-hmm. They don't last much more than about 10 years. Um, now, maybe because of Premox, maybe European wines aren't going to last like that any longer either. I don't know. That's one of the neat things about the wine industry. It's always changing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always winging out in one way or in another way. And sometimes we wing out like this thing with these high alcohol wines. And, you know, we, we're, we're kind of reeling it back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the great things about uh, New World, at least ways uh, America, is that we can if if we can think about it, it's almost certainly legal to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Europe, they can think about it, but they can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so, I mean, this is a conversation that can just go on and right. on and on and on. Uh, but I do think that uh, there is a component to what we really decide is great. Well, one thing I think we can all agree on is great is, is, is the view here and the wines are great and it's a really special place. So, Stu, thanks for joining me and sitting down with me and talking about uh, the history of Smith Madrone. Thanks very much.